you're new with us, it's a good Sunday to be here as we begin this new series uh, in the book of Genesis. We're actually going to focus on the first 11 chapters uh, in what is uh, often called primeval history, uh, which is then followed by patriarchal history. Uh, We'll come back to chapter 12 and following uh, at a later date, but I want to take 11 weeks uh, to think about sort of the foundations uh, of of life as we uh, look at uh, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And so uh, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we jump in. Father, we come to your word today mindful of the fact that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth. And I pray that today you would nourish us uh, by the power of your word, strengthen us, make us spiritually healthy, that we may glorify you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Introductions are very important. There was a visiting speaker that was introduced one time as the very famous Mr. Smith, who had just recently made one million pounds in the city of London. Mr. Smith got up to begin his talk, and he said, Thank you very much for the welcome and kind introduction. I'm afraid, however, that I need to begin by correcting what's just been said. It wasn't recently. It was actually ten years ago. It wasn't one million pounds. It was five million pounds. It wasn't in the city of London. It was in Birmingham. And it wasn't me. It was actually my brother. And he didn't make five million, he lost five million. It's important that we get Genesis 1, this introduction, correct. And Genesis 1-1 is an introduction like no other. God introduces himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ten words in English, seven words in Hebrew. I don't know how many in Arabic or Italian. But this very first verse introduces us to God, to the Bible, to the true story of the whole world, to the book of Genesis, and to the Pentateuch, which is the first five books. And it begins to lay the foundation for understanding God, life, and the world. So today what we're going to do is take a big picture view of what Katie has just read, these days of creation. Think about one of the most stunning things God has ever done, namely create the world. You know, when you're putting your resume together, you put things like where you went to school, what your grades were, what kind of experience you have, all the important people that you know, and those kinds of things. But this alone can be on God's resume. He created everything. Now, when we come into this room and we come to Genesis 1, we all come with various questions on our minds. Like, what is the meaning of the word day? And how does this account square with modern science? Like, what is the age of the earth? Are you young earth or old earth or middle earth? Um, And we know that Bible-believing Christians can disagree on these things, and they have throughout uh, history. Um, But what we do not disagree on is the fact that God alone is the creator. And we do not fear science. We actually appreciate science, and we do science, and we don't believe that it conflicts with the creation account. But we also come to Genesis 1 knowing the fact that many of our questions are not answered in Genesis 1. I mean, if you look at it, it's only one page. And yet, some people are not content with that. And what I want to suggest to you today is the dominant point Moses is making is actually very basic. It's incredible, but it's basic. And that point is that God alone created everything. The creation account is primarily focused on the who question. 
who created all of this. And that was important in Moses' day because as he is writing this, under the inspiration of the Spirit, they've just been brought out of polytheism in Egypt where they worship all sorts of things. And they're about to go into the promised land where there's also the threat of idolatry. And so there's a strong anti-mythical thrust in Genesis 1 where Moses is making a radical claim that God, infinitely wise and majestic and powerful, created all of it. There's not a God over the sun, not a God over the stars, not a different God over this and this and this, but there's actually one God who created all of it. And we should be really blown away by that. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses tells the people, hey, watch out that you don't worship uh, carved images of things we read about here in Genesis 1. He mentions fish, birds, males and females, the sun, moon, and stars. And then he says, know therefore today and lay it to heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath and there is no other. There's no other. Some 35 times in these verses, God is mentioned. He is the subject of the first verse of the Bible and his name just dominates the whole chapter and that's what I want us to think about today the wonder and greatness of God who created all things and there's massive implications of that obviously so let's work our way through it this big picture view next week I'll focus more on verses 26 to 31 as we think about the image of God and the following week I'll focus on the Sabbath in chapter 2 1 to 3 but for now let's look at all of it okay Uh, first of all the greatness of God's creation verses 1 and 2 followed by the goodness of creation verses 3 through the end of the chapter, and then thirdly, we'll think about the grace of rest. All right, first of all, the greatness of God in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you're a baseball player, you like to pronounce this in the big inning. Uh, Yeah, you like that? No, you didn't. Uh, He created all things. So he created all things visible and invisible. This initial act of creation is then followed by the process that follows. Now, some debate how to read verse 1. Is verse 1 a a summary of the entire chapter? I don't think that that's not the way I read it, but rather as the main clause describing the very first act of creation. And then verses 2 to 3 in the following verses describe the subsequent phases of God's creative activity. In other words, God speaks it into existence, creating matter where there had not been anything. And then the rest of the days of creation shows how God fashions it and shapes it as he forms the world and fills the world. And he does it, it says, at the beginning. Now we'd love to know how long ago this was, but the text doesn't tell us when this happened. But what we are drawn to is the fact that God was present at the beginning. He was present and active. And the beginning also anticipates an ending. And so we know that the Bible is telling one glorious story, right? There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, and it's an end that's actually a new beginning, right? But here it's in the beginning that anticipates the end, and because there's a beginning and end to history, that means this life has meaning. That's a subtle hint to the meaning of life, that life is not meaningless because it has an origin and it will have a conclusion, a completion, a consummation. And notice how God creates everything out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We say this in uh, theology, he created ex nihilio, out of nothing. This doesn't mean that God cannot use raw materials to create things. We read in chapter 2, verse 7, that God creates Adam out of the dust. But here we see that God creates ex nihilio. 
Paul says it this way in Romans 4, God calls into existence the things that are not. Or the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. By faith we understand that. Now we can't do this. We don't create ex nihilio. We don't speak things into existence like this. C.S. Lewis says the act of creation as it is for God must always remain totally inconceivable to man. For we, even our poets and musicians and inventors, never in the ultimate sense make. We only build. We always have materials to build from. But God creates out of nothing. And this word create in Hebrew is always used in the Old Testament with God as the subject. He alone creates like this. So we're meant to, to behold the wonder and majesty of God here. We see God's eternality, that he has no point of origin, that he exists. The Bible doesn't start off trying to argue for the existence of God. It assumes the existence of God. And God is not created. God is preexistent. It's not that God comes into the story. It's more like the story comes into God. God enjoyed perfect fellowship within the Trinity before he created the world. Sometimes people wonder, what was God even doing before he created the world? Augustine quipped, he was creating a hell for people who ask such questions. <laughs> it's not very nice, is it? Um, but God exists eternally. As the psalmist says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And we know as we read the rest of the Bible that Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, existed and created everything. And so there are Trinitarian hints, even in chapter 1 along the way. Verse 1, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I think the ESV is right to capitalize that. Even though the Old Testament reader would not have understood the Trinity the way we do, the fuller revelation of the New Testament allows us to understand that the creation was a work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul says it explicitly, doesn't he, in Colossians 1 when he says regarding Jesus, for by him all things were created. Or as John opens his prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we see God's eternality. We see God's sovereignty, that all things were created by him. Verse 2 would have been quite different than the other myths of the day, as the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. There are other ancient accounts where false gods Marduk or Baal bring order into chaos by having a fight against the waters. But here God forms the waters into a functioning creation by a sovereign power. As the spirit hovers over the water, the spirit doesn't fight against the water, but simply brings order out of chaos by a sovereign power. And it's a good reminder to us that our God knows how to bring order out of chaos, even the chaos of our own lives. If he can do it here, he can certainly do it in our lives. As we see in verse 2, it was without form and void. This speaks that the matter, that the created world at that time was desolate and uninhabitable. It will be the very opposite of what God will do as we read through the account. He will transform it by his creative power. There's darkness mentioned, and that's because God hasn't yet said, let there be light. But then the rest of the chapter then will unfold how God will form this earth and then fill this earth. And our proper response to this is to worship this God. As the writer of Revelation puts it, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
We also notice God's freedom, that God was not coerced into creating. He did it for his own pleasure, as Revelation 4.11 put it. By his will they were created. That God did not create out of necessity or out of need. He wasn't bored. He wasn't scared. He wasn't lonely. It was a free act of God by his good pleasure to create everything. Psalm 136.5 attributes it to his steadfast love. So it's a radical claim, these opening two verses. It rules out a number of worldviews. It rules out atheism, the view that there is no God. It rules out polytheism, that is, that there are many gods. It rules out pantheism, since the universe is not God. It rules out materialism, since matter is not all that there is, and matter is not eternal. It rules out fatalism, the idea that there's no plan behind creation and history. It rules out humanism, since man is not God. It does a whole lot, doesn't it? It's the greatness of God in creation. We should just become psalmists today. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Greatness of God. Now let's think about the goodness of this creation. We're trying to scroll through these six days uh, quickly. I want you to see some common elements in these days. Here are six common elements. There's an introduction. You see it right through the text. God said, God said, God said. There's a creative word, let there be. Or in the case of day six, let us make. There is the fulfillment of God's word, and it was so. And there is the name giving or blessing, and God called it or God blessed it. And then there is that famous divine commendation, God saw that it was good. And then there is this concluding formula that appears in almost all the days. There was evening and there was morning, the number of day. So it's a very carefully put together account. Doesn't answer all of the questions that we might have, but it answers the big question again, namely who created all of it. And one of the things that we shouldn't miss as we read this is this idea of form and filling. That there's a correspondence between day one and four, day two and five, and three and six. You see the, the chart there that has been created because we love you. That day one, God forms this, the light and the dark, and then we see the lights of day and night in day four, namely the sun and the moon and the stars. Then day two, the sea and the sky is formed, and it's then populated with fish and birds. Day three, there is the fertile earth created, and then the creatures of land we read about in day six, including uh, humans. And then day seven, God rests. So we'll look through it as we think about this form and feeling structure. First of all, day one, the light and dark. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Again, God speaks this into existence by his powerful word. Now, Paul picks up on this uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in speaking about salvation. When he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that this same creating God who speaks it into existence is the saving God who speaks a Christian into existence. There were Christians because God said in my soul and in your soul, let there be light. Which also gives us hope for people who are not Christians. Let us not doubt the majesty and power of our God. He has the ability to speak in dead hearts, dark hearts, and bring them to light and to life. That is good news, isn't it? This whole chapter should fill us with hope. 
The idea of God separating, verses 4 and 5, appears five times in the chapter. He separates the light from the darkness, and he calls it good. It's the way things are supposed to be. And he calls the light day. You see how he gives names? Because he's the sovereign ruler. Later, mankind will be a little ruler, also with the ability to assign names. But here it's God alone who calls it day. And again, there is an age-old question about What's the meaning of the word day? You know, the Hebrew word yom has a range of meanings. Is this, this is, you know, this is God's work days. Is this analogous but not identical to our, our days? Or is it really a 24-hour day? How can there be morning and evening when there's no sun or moon yet? All sorts of questions that people bring here. I'm going to let you guys work through all of that. Um, I agree with uh, Dr. Keithley, one of my profs. The argument about the length of days not only misses the point, but also detracts from the point being made. Fixating on the meaning of day is similar to, uh, to understanding Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel by mainly examining the paint pigments that he used. Instead, we should, I think, step back and appreciate the divine artist's creative power and beauty. So that's day one. Day two, he forms the sea and the sky. You notice how he uh, does it in verse 6, and we read how he separates the waters above and the waters below, that is the clouds that will bring rain and the, the, the seas uh, below. But there's no mention of God calling day two good. That's, that's a bit puzzling. As we read through the uh, days, there's, there's no statement that it is good. Of course, it is good, but uh, there's no mention of it. Someone said that's because it's Monday. All right. <laughs> Even God doesn't call Monday good. Uh, I think it's probably because there's kind of a two-day execution with day two and three. The waters aren't fully separated until day three, and then God declares it good. So he separates the, uh, the, the, uh, the expanse. He calls, uh, calls the sky heaven, or you see a footnote in your Bible with an ESV, uh, the sky, and then, uh, which was referring to what we see above us. As the rest of the chapter uh, makes clear, as we think about the great lights and the birds that fly above us, and then there are the waters below. This corresponds, again, day two to day five, with the fish in the sea now having a sky and water. Day three is the fertile earth, and we read about the various kinds of plants. There's uh, plants producing seed and fruit trees whose fruit uh, produces, uh, possesses seeds. And this, too, is in contrast to rival creation accounts, as in some cases, these were deities to be worshipped. But no, God says they're, they're here. I created them. Don't worship created things. Worship creator God. And he calls it good. And then God begins to fill what he's formed, lights of day and night. Verses 14 and 15, God the creator separates the light from the darkness and then in verses 16 to 19, there's a light given to rule the day and a light to rule the night, obviously speaking of the sun and the moon. They are God's good gifts. You see how uh, the writer says that they were given for something, that they are uh, given to uh, provide seasons and rhythms and patterns. And um, this is how Israel was to mark out their year for God. Again, there's a strong anti-mythical polemic going on here as a whole lot of people in Moses's day worship the moon and the sun and the stars and he's saying no God made them and we don't serve them they actually serve us they provide light for us 
They mark out the seasons for us. Now, strikingly, Moses doesn't call the light, the great light, the sun, nor the lesser light, the moon, and that's most likely because these were names of divinities. And Moses is basically saying, this, this is the greater light, that's the lesser light, God made them. We don't worship them, they actually serve us. And then notice verse 16, there's such a wonderful little throwaway statement when he says, and the stars. The massive galaxy gets, and the stars. That's what God did. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. He made the stars. We can only see a fraction of them with our eyes. One scholar said that if the stars were divided up among each person in the present population, we'd each have about two trillion. <laughs> the psalmist says in Psalm 147.4 that he determines the number of the stars and he gives them their names. That's how infinitely wise and powerful our God is. The proper response again to this is a life of worship, isn't it? Of awe. Some of you are old enough to remember 1968. Both of you who were around then uh, in, in this church. No, we have more than two. Um, remember, you may remember, and if you weren't, you may have seen this video. I encourage you to YouTube it or whatever later, whatever channel that you kids are watching these days. Um, Apollo 8 orbited around the moon on Christmas Day, and they read the first ten verses of Genesis to almost a million viewers. These brilliant individuals trained in science and technology didn't quote Einstein or some other genius, but fittingly drew attention to the glory of God, the creator. And of course, they were sued by the ACLU, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> you knew that would happen. But what a, what a fitting, a very moving scene as they orbit around the moon and read this account. Well, day five is the fish and birds. All the fishermen perk up as we get here, as you think about all of the fish that God created, and later he's so good, he says, you can have dominion over them. You can go win your bass tournaments and, uh, and, and slay them, you know. And so he, he mentions all of the creatures that move, those that swarm, uh, each according to their kind. He, he says that they are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the earth and let the birds multiply on the earth. So you think about all of the fish, thousands of fish, swordfish, tuna, dolphins, sardines. I think he made those. Sharks. Salmon, whales, the Leviathan, Psalm 104, that he formed, it says, to play in it, to play in the seas. And above, the eagles and the ravens and the geese and the ducks and the woodpeckers and the cardinals and all the beautiful things that fly around us. God made those. We're not worshiping them. We worship him as we behold their glory. Kimberly and I had the privilege last summer on sabbatical to go to Alaska and we were whale watching. You just see one whale and it just sends chills up you. We have binoculars looking for eagles. Just marveling at the glory of creation. Psalm 104 is a fitting psalm to, to read alongside of Genesis 1. Where the psalmist, after talking about all of the creatures that God has made, says, Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And then after telling of the uh, sea creatures and birds, he blessed them. This is the first mention of blessing, and it's tied in Genesis to offspring. God will bless them. They will be fruitful that they may reproduce. 
Well, this gets us to day six finally, right? That God creates the creatures of the land, including mankind. And you notice there just by the length of this portion that there's a lot to day six. And we'll come back to it uh, next week, hopefully. Just a few observations as you uh, scan through that paragraph. There are four divine speeches rather than two. That is, four times we read God says something. Verse 24, 26, 28, 29. And then skip down to verse 26. You see that this is the first time the use of let us make is used. This is different than let there be. Now it is let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is a, some kind of divine dialogue taking place. Let us make man in our own image. And you'll notice that he speaks to them this time, also showing something of the significance of being made in the Imago Dei, that, that we can relate to God. And we know in verses 26 and 7 here that mankind, man and woman, are the pinnacle of God's creation, the apex of God's creation. They both reflect God's glory as they are made in the Imago Dei. Great name for a church. It's only taken us 12 years to get to this verse. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? We could call it Image of God Baptist Church. It doesn't have the same ring uh, as Imago Dei, but maybe we should have. At any rate, because we're made in the Imago Dei, every human life matters. From the womb to the tomb, humans are to be valued and protected and treated with mercy and respect and care. We're separated, even though we're made on this same six days as the land creatures, we are set apart from this animal kingdom in a whole variety of ways. And the Imago Dei, the image of God, is best reflected in Jesus, who perfectly images his Father in character, convictions, and calling. And Genesis 126 anticipates the coming of the Savior, I think. And we read in the New Testament that when we see Jesus, we will be like him as he is. As John says in 1 John 3, 2, when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Our full transformation will then be experienced. And the couple are given the responsibility of being fruitful and multiplying. And a lot of people at Imago Dei apparently take that to, to, with great seriousness. Um, right? <laughs> Maybe we should have changed our name to Fruitful and Multiply uh, Community Church. Um, and we're also given this responsibility to, uh, to take dominion, that is, to be little rulers. Not to abuse God's creation. Some, because of sin, unfortunately do that. But care for creation, create things that bless uh, the world and so on. So they're given dignity and responsibility. And then we see in verses 29 and 30 more of the goodness of God in that he provides food for them. As he lists all of the, the vegetables that we can enjoy, including spinach salad to one of my sons. It's in the, it's in the Bible here. Um, and then uh, other things that the beast of the earth that we may enjoy. And you notice in verse 31, as you get to the end of it, this time God says not only is it good, but it is very good. That the six days are complete and God looks at it and says it's very good. Now, even though we live on this side of the fall, we should still recognize the goodness of God's creation. And we should be thankful for all that God allows us to enjoy in creation. We should delight in mountains and lakes and oceans and grass and trees, your garden, your pets, even cats. 
maybe, your children, food and drink. And we should be able to step back and look at, our, and look at these things and, and give thanks to Creator God and recognize that creation is a loving gift from a great God. Now the final piece, verses 1 and 3 of chapter 2, the grace of rest. Verse 1 really fits better in chapter 1 because it completes the bookend of what was stated in chapter 1. That is, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. So unlike my projects, God finishes his projects. <laughs> he finished his work. And while mankind is the pinnacle of creation, you see here that day seven is very special and very significant, very unique, that God rests on this day. It's not that God was exhausted. It's like, boy, day six really got me. But rather he ceases from his creative work. He is still sustaining the world. He's never not been at work, but he ceases from these six days of creation. And he looks over everything after day six and says, it is very good. Now, I think in a very small way, we reflect God when we do something and we think we did an okay job with it. We step back and we're like, oh, that was, that was a good paper. Uh, I do this with yard work. Every Saturday, Kimberly makes fun of me. I almost cut the grass every Saturday, and then two times at least, yesterday was about four times, I'll go back outside just to look at it. <laughs> it was four yesterday because I planted some flowers yesterday, and, and I, I go out, and, you know, you kind of sometimes feel like you're, you're, you're not, you know, you're not much, like your life may be a failure, and, uh, you know, like what's, what's going on here, and then you go outside, and you've completed something. You see that work, was, there was progress, and you're like, I am somebody every, every Saturday. That's why I'm, I'm happy on Sunday because Saturday I cut the grass. And, uh, <laughs> and I mean, you're like, it's very good. You take delight in it. You, you, and God steps back at his creation and he takes pleasure in it. He says it's very good. And he rests on this day from this creative work. Notice the number seven repeated three times, the number of perfection. And notice this is the first time the word holy is used in the Bible, and it's about a particular day. He calls this day holy. And then finally, notice that on the seventh day, we don't read the phrase, there was evening and morning. In a sense, it has no end. There will be no more work until the new creation, the Sabbath rest of God, continues. Now, there's a whole lot we could say about work and rest. We'll save some of that for a few weeks down the road. But I would just remind you of what the writer of Hebrews says about the Sabbath in Hebrews chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 he says that in Christ there's a Sabbath rest for God's people so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his in other words the Sabbath rest was a type of Christ it was a shadow of which Jesus is the substance it was a pointer to another kind of rest a more necessary rest. And when we trust in Jesus, we come and rest in his finished work. We find the rest that you cannot find anywhere else. Yes, we need rest from our labor and our toil. That's wise and good and part of the rhythm of creation. But there is a rest underneath every other rest. And that is a rest in Jesus who looks at the weary world and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's what we need more than a nap. We need a rest in Jesus Christ, right?
a rest underneath every other rest. As Augustine says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And if you're not a Christian, I hope you hear that as the best news you could ever hear. That coming to Jesus is not coming to a burden. It's coming to rest. It's coming to grace. And so, as we make some final reflections, that's my first one. Come to this Savior for salvation. The God who created the world is the God who saves sinners. The God who created the world is the living God. The God who created the world has sent Jesus into this broken world. As we see in chapter 3, there's been a fall. We're now separated and alienated. But Jesus has come to restore. He's come to give us rest. And one day he will come again and make all things new. So the opening chapter of Genesis is pointing us to salvation. Paul told those at Lystra to stop worshiping idols. Instead, turn to the living God who made the, the heavens and the earth. So salvation. The second implication of this chapter is obvious, and that is worship. We're called to worship in this chapter, aren't we? Nehemiah put it well when he says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens, and with their host and the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You pre uh, preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Or as the psalmist says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. May everything that you enjoy in creation lead you into worship. Not to worship the created things, but the creator God. Paul Tripp gets very granular when he says, how can we boil water, mash potatoes, or scramble eggs without seeing the glory of God? <laughs> how can we hold an infant in our hands without being in awe of her creator? How can the ever-changing variegated hues of a sunset not produce awe of God in us? How can tadpoles in a stream not make us smile and worship? How can the whistle of the wind through the trees not become a hymn of praise in our hearts to God? Finally, hope. You need help today? You dealing something with today? This is our God. We don't have a puny God. The psalmist tells us, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Whereas the psalmist says a couple of times, our help is in the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And I know it's very easy to get overwhelmed by all of our troubles and all of our sorrows. But let's read and take our sorrows and troubles and read them in light of Genesis 1. And recognize this is our God. We're not hopeless because we're not helpless. He is our help. And praise be to God. Let's pray together. Father, what a God you are. We worship you. We want to set our hope on you. And we thank you for the great salvation you've given us through Christ that has enabled us to know you and to have all of these things we've talked about. And we bless you. I pray this week we would go through our week with worship as we consider your greatness in creation and your goodness to us in creation. And now we think about your son that you sent into the world to give us eternal life, give us this promise of a new heaven and a new earth. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we want to pray that you would increase our gratitude for all that Christ has done for us and all that he has for us in the future. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.